Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You are listening to As a Woman, episode 28, The Embryo Transfer. This is a follow-up to the IVF episode where I'm going to go into detail about the options if you're looking at an embryo transfer. Important to understand is that very often we separate the process of IVF from the process of the embryo transfer. So listen here to learn more about what a transfer looks like. Welcome to As a Woman, the podcast hosted by fertility physician, Dr. Natalie Crawford, to educate and empower women. Each week, learn about your health, your fertility, and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community, fostering collaboration over competition while learning how to authentically find your voice and amplify others as a woman. Hi, friends. Welcome back to As a Woman. You are listening to episode 28, The Embryo Transfer. So for all of you who have gone through or are going through IVF, the embryo transfer is one of the most crucial parts. For all of you who have not even journeyed into this infertility world, super important for you to understand what your friends and family members may be going through this and some things that we do and don't do in current practice. So let's start at the beginning. The embryo transfer is the act of putting an embryo inside a woman. The actual process is pretty straightforward. I have a catheter that gets loaded with an embryo or embryos, and it gets placed vaginally. So the small catheter moves through the cervix into the uterus. Very small injection of an embryo and some fluid goes right into the endometrial cavity. Catheter comes out. Procedure is over. So the actual act of the embryo transfer itself is pretty straightforward. It's a high-stakes environment. So if you're an RE like me, this is the money shot. This is when it all matters. This is when you have to be very good with fine motor and small control because you don't need a lot of movement at this time. Precision and accuracy, that's where it all is. So one of the most common questions I get asked is how many embryos are we going to transfer? There's something called SART, the Society for Assisted Reproductive Technology, and they help provide guidelines for us for best practice. One of the things that's always a hot topic is how many embryos to transfer, and this is a complicated topic. The reason why is initial practice in IVF to current practice has changed dramatically, and this is all because as our technology has gotten better, embryos survive better in the lab, and we feel more comfortable freezing embryos. So think of it this way. When embryo freeze and thaw was not a great technology, so before vitrification, embryos were frozen in a slow freeze process, and they didn't always survive the freeze-thaw. In fact, previous counseling was that success rates from a frozen embryo transfer were two-thirds of that for what a fresh embryo transfer was. Previous counseling, that's not the current state of affairs, so don't freak out if you're hearing that. But let me explain that a little bit more. Since we started doing vitrification, which is a flash freezing process, the embryo, there's immersion into liquid nitrogen and it creates a solid glass-like state. Embryos survive in that process very, very well. In fact, we quote survival rates around 99% in our current lab. Clinically, I even think they survive better, meaning 
I've done more than 100 transfers. I've only had one embryo that was vitrified, not survived the freeze-thaw process. That being said, as we now feel more confident in our freezing techniques, it has changed clinical practice. So as technology has gotten better, we have made changes. This is what you're supposed to do in medicine. This is evidence-based medicine. But let's go back to when IVF originally was started. If I didn't trust my freeze-thaw process, meaning I knew I would lose embryos in that, and I wanted patients to have the highest chance of getting pregnant, if I put more embryos inside of them doing an embryo transfer, they would have a higher chance of pregnancy and a higher chance of those embryos turning into children, especially before we did genetic testing of embryos, or PGT, pre-implantation genetic testing. So three big things have really changed in order to have us transferring fewer embryos with IVF. That is one, improvement in the freeze-thaw process. Two, improvement in embryo culture. Embryos previously were transferred only at the cleavage stage or day three embryo. Now, as culture media has improved, we are transferring embryos at the blastocyst stage or day five or six. And three, PGT or pre-implantation genetic testing. So as the technology has changed, what we are doing is changing. But I still see a lot of patients who come in and they want twins or they believe IVF is associated with a high risk of multiples. IVF is actually the safest technology we have, meaning medications to make you ovulate, like Clomid, Femora, or injectable hormones. They all have much higher rates of twins and high-order multiples than IVF does, especially when we're transferring just one embryo, which is this current standard of care for most practicing modern physicians. So if you have genetically tested embryos, then we should be putting back one genetically normal embryo, regardless of your age, to get the highest chance of a live birth. And I tell my patients this all the time. Live birth, that's the real goal. It doesn't matter if I'm going to improve your pregnancy test rate. Who cares about a positive pregnancy test if it doesn't equal a baby in your arms? Live birth is the goal. So genetically tested embryos, one regardless of age. That's the recommendation. If we're not genetically testing our embryos, if you're less than or equal to 37, still one. One embryo is the best. As we are older than 37, so 38 and above, we can transfer more embryos if you've not genetically tested, and this is in attempts to overcome the increased rates of aneuploidy or abnormal chromosome number as we get older. So if you're between 38 to 40 and you do not have genetically tested embryos, we can transfer two. If you're 41 or older, we could transfer three. I still have only transferred three embryos one time in my whole career. Probably will never do it again. And I've had plenty of untested two embryo transfers result in twin miscarriage or preterm birth, birth before viability. And that's a really hard place to be. And those patients have always wondered if they'd only transferred one, would they have still been in that position? To be honest, if you come to see me in my clinical practice, I'm a believer in PGT or the genetic testing as you get older. So instead of transferring two embryos and having a higher risk of complications, we're really just rolling the dice. They both may be abnormal. We're wasting time and money. They both may be normal. You may end up with twins or triplets because embryos can split. And I don't want to put you in the camp of having a lower chance of bringing a baby home. So for me, if you're 37 and less, you're getting one embryo. 
And if you're 38 and older, we should really be doing genetic testing of embryos. So this is really a moot point, meaning one embryo is what I'm heavily counseling all of my patients. And I honestly think a majority of REs are doing the same. To be clear, if you are in a place that is having a cleavage stage or a day three transfer, there's a few situations where we do that. Typically, it's because they don't survive in culture very well. Like we've seen your embryos degrade from day three to day five, or you just don't have very many embryos. Sometimes a clinic will recommend transferring on day three over five. That's typically an a fresh embryo transfer. So again, a fresh transfer is one that happens in the cycle of IVF. So IVF in vitro fertilization, the act of growing eggs, taking them out of the body, fertilizing them in the lab, and growing embryos out, you can have a transfer three or five days later. That's a fresh transfer. When IVF was first started, that's the only thing that existed. Now, frozen embryo transfers. So embryos grow out in culture until they're that day five or six blastocyst. Day six means embryos grew a little bit slower in culture, but they reached that perfect day five state on day six. So they're frozen looking the exact same. However, it just took them a little longer. That's actually nice because it allows you to sync up the embryos at the perfect stage of development with the uterine lining in a frozen embryo transfer cycle. There's a lot of different reasons for frozen embryo transfers. One, genetic testing. So the vast majority of us who do PGT, we do biopsies. The samples get sent away and we wait for the results. And when we transfer the normal embryo in the next month, in the frozen embryo transfer or FET cycle. Doing a frozen embryo transfer is also one of the best ways to reduce the risk of OHSS or ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. OHSS is a higher risk when you have more eggs that grow because of the high hormone levels, the high estrogen level during the IVF process. That increases the chance that you could develop OHSS. When you do an embryo transfer in a fresh cycle in a woman at risk for OHSS, then her risk multiplies. And that's because that pregnancy, if she gets pregnant, stimulates the body to be at higher risk for OHSS. So freezing all the embryos is a great way to lower this risk. And then also freezing the embryos can allow for better synchrony for later cycles because you can get those day six embryos into it. Most of my patients are freezing their embryos either because they're young and at risk for OHSS or because they're wanting to do pre-implantation genetic testing. When we now, it's not that frozen embryo transfers are the only thing we do. We certainly still do fresh embryo transfers. So, for some patients who are not going to overstimulate and who cannot afford or do not want to do genetic testing, they're a great candidate for a fresh transfer. Or if you're doing a minimally stem IVF, so we do InvoCell at my current practice, and I'll circle to that at the end. But I just did a fresh transfer in a patient who did InvoCell last week. So there are four select patient populations. So the fresh transfer is pretty simple. You have your egg retrieval and that is day zero and you're going to count out day one, two, three, four, five. You'll have your transfer on either day three or day five. Most of us are pushing to blast. That's day five because we feel like we want the better selection of embryos. Blastocysts are having higher success rates. So usually you'll have a day five embryo transfer Five days later, you will need to be on progesterone for luteal phase support, and the progesterone you can use in a fresh cycle is a little bit different than a frozen. For a frozen embryo transfer, so you're going to go through your egg retrieval, and then you're going to wait. You're going to have a period about 10 days later, and then once you have a period, 
you're going to start the process of preparing for an embryo transfer. So let's talk a little bit about the FET and the different protocols and the different ways you can get from point A to point B. So one way is that you can do controlled cycles or natural cycles or modified natural cycles. So a controlled cycle is the most common. In a controlled cycle, we control the growth of the uterine lining by taking estrogen. It takes approximately two weeks to get the uterine lining to grow and develop. This can be with estrogen pills by mouth. It can be with estrogen patches. It can be with vaginal estrogen or an injectable form of estrogen. Most of us are using estrogen pills as kind of the base and then sometimes vaginal or patches depending on the patient situation. But approximately two weeks of growth gets you to that perfect lining. When we do this cycle, you're going to do a baseline so an evaluation before you begin the cycle, and you will do lining checks, at least one, before the transfer to make sure the lining looks good. What we are looking for on the lining check is a couple things. So number one, the thickness of the lining, and number two, the architecture of the lining. So for the thickness of the lining, there's no hard and fast number. We all have a certain range, like if it's more than seven to eight millimeters, we feel better at that. But some women will never grow a lining more than six millimeters. That's just their normal. So we can't ask you to achieve something that's not going to be normal for you. A good indicator of your potential is what your lining grew to in your IVF cycle when you had a lot of estrogen. So sometimes we use that as a base for what we should be hoping for. For the architecture, we are looking for a trilaminar appearance. Trilaminar means three parallel lines when we look on ultrasound. So that's a specific ultrasound description, but it means very organized. And you see this growth when you're in an estrogen-dominant environment. Now, we have to override your body's natural cycle in some way. One way is just that this estrogen is at a high enough dose that it's going to prevent you from ovulating. This means that the estrogen has to be perfectly timed when you start your period. So while you're on your period, you'll start taking the estrogen and it leaves very little wiggle room in the cycle. Sometimes we will lead into it with birth control pills very often if we're coming off an IVF cycle. This way we can get the body to heal a little bit and then we can control when you have that period and when you start the estrogen so you know when your transfer is going to be. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited the summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. 
But I know that when I'm outside enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. Their essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual Multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No my shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. That's still a controlled cycle. The estrogen itself is supposed to prevent you from growing a follicle or ovulating. In a controlled cycle, the problem with growing a follicle is that follicle will make estrogen, which is fine, but if it ovulates before you're supposed to see progesterone, that's a problem. So there is a risk of having a cycle canceled for follicular development, and that's why that monitoring ultrasound, we are also evaluating your ovaries to see if you have a follicle growing. And if you have a follicle growing, trying to make sure that it's still at the early stages and not advanced or making progesterone. You can break through your estrogen just like women break through their birth control pills. And in those circumstances, you may have your cycle canceled because of early progesterone release. One way to prevent that is to overlap your cycle with a combination of birth control pills and Lupron. So the same Lupron medication that prevents the brain from sending out FSH and LH, that medication can be used in IVF cycles. If you use Lupron in an embryo transfer cycle, you will have a lower rate of cancellation due to breaking through and ovulating early. The real important thing to understand and what I tell every patient is that your transfer date is not set in stone until you start progesterone. And once you start progesterone, it is happening on that day we planned or it is not. Progesterone start is day zero and then you'll do the transfer on the sixth day of exposure to progesterone, just like you would on an egg retrieval cycle there's a narrow window for implantation. So the duration and the amount of exposure to progesterone, crucial, highly important. So if you, oops, start your progesterone a day late, 
you then will have to have your transfer a day late or maybe canceled. Similarly, if you've already started your progesterone and then something happens, let's say it's grandma dies, you need to go out of town for the funeral, totally understand that. However, that means that your transfer will not be able to happen. We can't just push it a few days if you've already started your medication. And if your lining's not quite ready at your monitoring ultrasound, so you've used your two weeks of estrogen, we do a lining check, and I think you need an extra week, that an extra week of estrogen exposure would make a difference for us. Your entire transfer may be shifted by a week. So even though it's controlled and we're trying our best to plan it out, we can't say 100% for sure your transfer day till we do that monitoring ultrasound, confirm that the lining looks how we want it to look, and that you're not growing a follicle or ovulating early, then you will start the progesterone and your transfer date will be set. So let's talk about progesterone. There are many different ways that you can have progesterone. In a controlled cycle, your body is not ovulating. We are replacing everything you need with estrogen. That means your ovaries are making zero progesterone. So you need to get high levels of progesterone exposure. And current research is showing us that at least some intramuscular progesterone, IM progesterone, progesterone and oil, PIO, is needed or helpful here. It can be a daily progesterone injection. That's probably the most common just because it's consistent. It can be an every three-day progesterone injection with vaginal progesterone also. But typically for a controlled FET, you're going to see us, your REs, counseling you that intramuscular progesterone is likely the best for you. And that's because studies are associating it with higher success rates. I'll admit, this is even currently being studied, so we're getting increasingly new data as more studies are being done on this topic. But current practice is to include IMPIO with patients who are doing a frozen embryo transfer if they can tolerate it. It's actually cheaper, so a lot of patients are concerned about cost when it comes to this part of the cycle. This is not that expensive of a medication. The vaginal gel suppositories are actually much more expensive. However, it's an IM shot and it hurts. So that's really the thing that most patients are concerned about. They usually need somebody to help give it to them. And it's a rather bigger shot than the rest of the IVF process. But I'm going to tell you this. If you are listening and you're going to go through a cycle and you're super nervous about what I'm saying, it's worth it. If this is what your doctor recommends, it is worth it. So don't even give it a second thought. Just go for it. Now, if you're doing a fresh cycle or a modified natural cycle, that's different because part of that, the ovaries made estrogen. So those follicles are going to make some progesterone. So we only need to supplement these cycles. Instead of in a controlled FET, we have to replace. So we have to give you everything you should have had. When we're supplementing, we don't need quite as strong of medications, so we can usually get away with vaginal progesterone or a combination of oral and vaginal, and that's what some of us will do in those natural, modified natural, or fresh cycles. So compared to the controlled FET, where you're controlling the cycle by taking estrogen and preventing ovulation, a natural cycle is exactly what it sounds, utilizing somebody's natural cycle. They must be ovulatory. So if you are a patient and you come to me and you want to have a natural cycle FET and you don't ovulate regularly, nope, not going to happen, not a great idea. 
So you need regular periods on your own to make this work. But essentially, you let the clinic know when you start your cycle, and we will start to monitor you before we think you will ovulate. So you have to come in much more frequently in this cycle, come in for an ultrasound, check some blood. Nope, your follicle's not mature yet. Come back in a couple days. So there's more visits, and I have no idea what your transfer day is. I'll say in a controlled FET, 90, 95% of my patients are having their transfer on the day we plan it to be with those few exceptions for canceled cycles or pushing a week. But in a natural FET, I have no idea. It totally depends on you and your body, how fast or how slow you grow an egg. Also, what your lining looks like. Your lining may not be excellent the time when you have a mature egg, but it totally depends. Even in a natural cycle, we still add some medication. So I don't want you to think it's perfectly au naturel. We still need to time things perfectly. So the natural part is the growing of the follicle is natural. That's based on your normal cycle. The follicle has the egg inside, and that's what makes estrogen as it grows. And estrogen is what stimulates the uterine lining. So that's all happening naturally. Most of us still make you use a trigger shot, so we force it to ovulate at a dedicated time frame. And then we proceed with starting some type of progesterone supplementation, usually vaginal progesterone, but everybody has their own preferences. And the transfer is then assigned and timed based on when we know your trigger shot is going to be. Now, a modified natural is similar, except we are growing the lining with the adjunct of medication. So the natural part is still that your body's making your own estrogen, and that is what's growing the lining. But you'll use medications like letrozole, which is an oral pill that you take that makes you ovulate usually a better or more follicles, or sometimes even low-dose gonadotropins, which are the medications you use during the IVF cycle, the FSH and LH. Small doses of those can cause you to grow a follicle or multiple small follicles, therefore making estrogen and growing your lining. But very similarly, you trigger and you'll use progesterone afterwards. So both natural cycle and modified natural cycle, advantage is that some women grow a better lining with their own endogenous estrogen than with synthetic. So whether you're a fast metabolizer of my oral estrogen or it just isn't getting absorbed well vaginally or from the patches, I will see some women who perform better in a natural cycle. My go-to is usually a controlled cycle. That's usually our cycle one because most women won't break through. It's actually a nice reprieve to have things scheduled and be more in control of the cycle. And the vast majority of women grow a beautiful lining in this controlled fashion. So it makes it easy for you to get a transfer date set in your mind and you know this is when it's going to be and we kind of proceed forward. That control takes away some of the stress and anxiety from this infertility process. However, some women just prefer a natural approach or I don't love their lining in a controlled cycle, so we'll shift it up a bit. So if I don't love your lining, what are, what's going through my brain? One is that you may respond better to endogenous versus exogenous estrogen. So let's try a natural cycle or a modified natural. Sometimes you're a fast metabolizer, so let's try vaginal estrogen or let's try injectable or a patch and see if that gets us different. Sometimes you need extra blood supply to the uterus. So sometimes we've actually done Viagra to help improve the blood supply. There's really a few little tricks that we have, and it depends on what our goal is for you. So I always have women asking me, what's the minimum I need for it to be successful? I am sure there are a lot of women who get pregnant 
with thin linings. We just don't know because it's happening in natural cycles. So I try not to harp on the number. I personally believe that architecture, so how pretty it looks, is potentially more important than the thickness. And if your lining was thin in your IVF cycle, it probably will be thin no matter what I throw at you. So in the setting of a high estrogen level from IVF, from multiple follicles making estrogen at once, if your lining is not very thick in that time frame, it is likely unreasonable and we will get frustrated shooting for more than that. Now, some women don't have a beautiful architecture. That's just their body's way of how they respond. I will say most of the time, this is in the subset of prior uterine surgery. So prior myomectomies in the past or surgery for adenomyosis, lots of endometrial surgeries, sometimes disrupting that blood supply to the uterus does make a difference. This is why those of us in the field are very cautious about cutting on the uterus. If you have a fibroid, just because we find it there, many of us will not take it out unless we truly believe that that fibroid is in a location that it hinders your fertility. Because if we cut on your uterus and we sew it back together, we are changing the way the blood flow patterns normally are in your uterus, and that has impacts. Doesn't mean we don't do it, but very often women will think, I want these fibroids out no matter what, and it may not be the best thing for you, depending on size and location for your fertility. So taking the fibroids out is not always the best option because sometimes I do see I'm trying to grow the lining in somebody who's had uterine surgery in the past, and I just can't get it as pretty as I would love it to be. What you're hearing is there's some trial and error in this process. I wish I could sit across from you and say I could look at a patient and know exactly what she needs to get her lining the best and have the highest chance of success, but we often don't. We try to set things up the best that we can, but it's not always going to be the case. So we're looking to make sure that we're optimizing every single data point that we can optimize. And if we cancel your cycle, it is not to be mean. It's because we believe you can do better. These embryos are so precious. We went through a lot to get them that we want to make sure that we're doing everything we can to have the highest chance of success. So success rates, let's just talk about this for a minute. One, they're highly correlated with age, especially in untested situations. So the rate of aneuploidy or abnormal chromosome number increases as you get older. So if you're less than 35, approximately 30% of your eggs or embryos will be genetically abnormal. If you're between 35 to 37, that number is closer to 40%. If you're between 38 to 40, that number's 55%. And if you're 41 or older, that number's over 70%. So we're seeing this rapid increase in the number of genetic abnormalities as we get older, especially after we cross that 37-year-old threshold. Now, success rates with IVF are distinctly correlated with this. So if we just look at doing embryo transfers based on age and we're not looking at separating out genetically normal or abnormal embryos, just all comers... If you're less than 35, your chance of success is 53%. If you're between 35 to 37, 40%. 38 to 40, 26%. 41 to 42, 12%. And 43 or older, 4%. So you can see a marked decline as women get older, and that is the impact of age on infertility. That's why if you're coming to see me and you're 40, we're already looking at a lower chance of success. We got to be aggressive from the get-go. When we do genetic testing of embryos, 
we are seeing rates closer to 60 to 70% with just one euploid embryo. And that is the power of genetic testing in this population. So success really depends on your age, but you can overcome your age if we do genetic testing to an extent. One of the hardest things is that as we get older, not only do we have a decline in our egg quality, we also start to run out of eggs. So at some point, we are unable to get the number of eggs that we need to find the genetically normal one to have success in transfer. But I say this all the time, 60 to 70%, even in a 30-year-old who underwent IVF and did genetic testing, that's not 100%. There is this reasoning as humans, we really believe that genetically normal embryos should have a 100% chance of success. That's how we feel inside. Meaning, as humans, we think that genetically normal embryos should result in a baby all the time, and it just isn't the case. This is how I phrase it to patients. Genetics aren't everything. Yes, you need a genetically normal code to become a baby, but the right genes have to be turned on and off, cells have to divide, organs have to form, The pregnancy has to implant. Your body must accept it. So many things have to happen that genetics are not everything. We are just overcoming one major hurdle. So if you're a patient going through IVF and an FET, I tell my patients, prepare yourself for two transfers to get to a baby. The truth is somewhere in between, but be prepared for two. That also means that if we're embryo banking, so we're going through multiple cycles and then getting all the kids you're ever going to need because maybe you're 38 and you came to see me a little later than you would have loved to get this journey started and you still want to have multiple kids, our best plan is to get multiple embryos before we start transferring because we know that when you come back ready in two more years for baby number two, after you have gestated and given birth and healed, we are going to have a lot larger proportion of our embryos abnormal, and we will have fewer eggs to start with. So we usually want to have double the number of children we would like to have in the freezer before we start transferring. The truth is, I don't know how easy or hard this will be for you. Step one is often get embryos. Step two is start getting ready for the embryo transfer. That being said, we use odds to help guide us to set expectations appropriately. For any given person, we could fall on either side of the odds, but my job is to prepare you so you can see what may or may not be coming and you know how to handle it. A few things. One is that before we proceed with an embryo transfer, we want to make sure the uterine cavity is a good home for an embryo. Specifically, what I mean is that there's no polyps, scar tissue, protruding fibroids, something pushing into the cavity so that place where we're going to go put an embryo and would result in lowering of success rates. So that's usually done by either surgery, like a hysteroscopy, which is a camera through the vagina into the uterus, or with a test called a saline-infused ultrasound. That's just done in the office. It's where we push a small catheter, same catheter we use for embryo transfer, through the cervix and into the uterus, and then we inject the uterus with saline as we watch with ultrasound. The saline distends the uterus, so it pushes the two uterine walls apart, and we can see inside the cavity to see if there's any abnormalities. Nice thing here is that we get to practice passing the catheter, so that's a mock transfer, so we know if it's going to be a difficult or an easy transfer when it's time for the embryo transfer. Most of us will also want to make sure that your tubes are not dilated. A hydrosalpinx is water. It's a dilated fallopian tube. It means water on the tube. So... 
Think about if you have a tubal dilation, this could be one reason you're having infertility. Sometimes this is a totally pain-free situation. Could be due to endometriosis, prior gonorrhea or chlamydia infection, sometimes prior surgery or just unknown. But if you have a dilated tube, that toxic fluid, I usually like to think about it like pond water, like stagnant pond water. Imagine that's migrating its way back into the uterus into that endometrial cavity where we want to go put an embryo. It's highly inflammatory. Body doesn't like inflammation. So we see a decrease of 50% in pregnancy rates in a transfer where there's a hydrosalpinx present. So we recommend either doing surgery or an HSG, which is a hysterosalpingogram, prior to the embryo transfer. That way we can make sure that there's no dilated tube before we do a transfer. And if there is, we just take it out. You do surgery and the tube is removed. It is a minor day surgery. I know that sounds very scary, but it is the best thing for you when it comes to fertility. If you have a dilated tube, it is not working. It is not functioning. It is not helping you. And in fact, it is only harming your fertility. Some other things to touch on as we're getting towards this stage is lifestyle factors. What can you do to best prepare for your chance of success? One is good preventive care. Make sure pap smear up to date. Make sure you have a mammogram if you're 40 or older. That you have had all your immunizations and you're immune to rubella and varicella and you don't need a new vaccine before you get pregnant. We want you to be living your healthiest life possible. That may require weight loss prior to the embryo transfer, depending on your own goals and what your doctor says. A healthy fertility diet giving lots of vitamins and nutrients. It is hard to study diet. It is very hard to study diet and specifically embryo transfer, trying to decide what diet will make a difference. What we know is we want you to be as healthy as possible. Lots of whole food, plant-based. That means real fresh foods. Decrease out your processed foods. Limit your meat. You don't have to have no meat. I try to push some of my patients to no meat, but it's really an individualized choice. But high meat diets can be highly inflammatory. So you really want to focus on filling you up with fruits and vegetables first, whole grains with lots of fiber. That's great. Limiting your sugar, limiting your processed foods, limiting your exposure to environmental contaminants like endocrine disrupting chemicals or excess hormones, which sometimes we do see in the production of animal products. Limiting your exposure to environmental chemicals on a whole. So there's that environmental toxin episode that I did with Dr. Laura Shaheen. So listening to that one to see how you can decrease your exposure to BPA, to phthalates, to PFCs, to chemicals that we know can be harmful to your fertility. So really you want to be just as clean as possible. Stress is such a hard concept for us. I always tell patients, I don't want you to be stressed over being stressed. That being said, the body often can't differentiate between a chronic high-stress environment because your job is hard or your personal situation is hard versus a chronic high-stress environment because you're living in a war or a famine. What the body's supposed to do is not get pregnant when you're highly stressed. I don't believe that stress alone can prevent somebody from getting pregnant, but I certainly think we need to control everything that we can. I tell my patients... Don't stress over being stressed, but one, you must carve out time for yourself during this process to be you, to journal, to meditate, to go to counseling, to do acupuncture, to take care of yourself and feel like you. When it comes to acupuncture, 
there has been a meta-analysis, so a review of all the studies that showed an improvement in women who did IVF, who did sham or real acupuncture over nothing. There was no difference in the IVF versus the sham acupuncture group. What that means is, in my take, it may not be that where they put the needles is magic or will help every single woman, certainly may help some women, but that act of going to acupuncture, that's being very mindful. It's usually a dark, calming space, very relaxing, lowering your stress hormones. And that's probably good for you, no matter what. With a caveat, if you hate needles or if you go to acupuncture and you hate it, then don't spend time there. Don't worry about that. That's not going to help you. And maybe you would do better getting up 20 minutes before the other people in your house and journaling or meditating or having some time for you to get inside your own head and be true with yourself. I also want my patients to just healthy overall. So we want to limit our consumption of caffeine to at least, you know, one cup a day, but no more. We want to be careful about what our one cup means. We want to eliminate alcohol and smoking and no illegal drugs in this process. I get asked all the time about CBD oil. Hey, guys, it's not studied, so my recommendation has to be no. I'm going to end this episode, which is packed full of information, with what about if my transfer doesn't work? Thoughts going forward. One is that, remember, 60 to 70% is not 100, and that's if you genetically tested your embryos. If you didn't, your chance of success is 50% or lower. So it often takes two transfers. A large proportion of patients will not be pregnant from transfer number one. That's point number one. Point number two, we don't always have an unlimited supply of embryos. So if you only have two embryos, you may feel more nervous about this process than the woman who has eight embryos. I think that makes a lot of sense. I promise you, your doctor is nervous too. So we are constantly thinking through all these things. We want to make sure, one, we've done a full evaluation on your uterine cavity. Two, if anything has changed from the last evaluation to now, we want to relook again. Three, that we really liked how your lining looked in the course of the transfer. Comparing it to your IVF cycle, do we need to do something different? Do we need to try a different protocol type? Do we need to look for other causes that could be playing a role here? We start to pull the literature from the recurrent pregnancy loss population into our IVF patients who have failed implantation of a normal embryo. There have been studies now looking at recurrent implantation failure. So when you're doing embryo transfers and it's not working, and we, that literature is guiding us that there may be a subset of an evaluation we do in these patients. I will say we start thinking about this earlier as it, we have fewer and it's harder to generate embryos. Although it's really important from a patient perspective to know that apples and oranges, we may not be comparing the same thing here. The recurrent pregnancy loss patient is not the patient who had one failed transfer of a U-plate embryo. But we are doing our best to think about you. Sometimes this includes a recurrent pregnancy blood loss panel. This can include looking at clotting disorders such as antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, thyroid antibodies, things like that. Sometimes this is the consideration of adding an aspirin or Lovenox to your treatment cycle. Sometimes we are doing something called an ERA or an endometrial receptivity analysis. The ERA is a biopsy, so it is putting a pipelle or a catheter into your uterus, and we take out a sample of the endometrium. 
In the lab, the ratio of estrogen to progesterone receptors is evaluated to determine if the lining is receptive on the day of the biopsy. What we actually do is we prep you for an embryo transfer. We really want your prep process to be the exact same as the process when you're going to do the transfer, so the exact same cycle. You're taking estrogen. You then start your progesterone. We do the biopsy on the sixth day of progesterone on the day we'd be doing an embryo transfer. That's what happens. So it does take about a whole month at least out of your cycle, and you have to go through this process, which we do it in the clinic. What we get back is that the vast majority of patients, even with recurrent implantation failure, so not recurrent pregnancy loss, but recurrent implantation failure, over 80% will have a receptive report on their ERA biopsy. That means no difference. Their, their lining was perfect on the day we should have put an embryo inside. Now, 17% of patients in a recent study looking at recurrent implantation failure had a non-receptive endometrial lining on this day. That means that their report came back, and based on their ratio of estrogen-progesterone receptors, the most receptive day in their uterus was either a day before or a day after. Then the embryo transfer can be shifted. In this study, what was seen is that those patients who then had a shift and their embryo transfer happened on a different day had the same rate of success in the subsequent transfer. They had the same rate of success as the patients in the group with a receptive report. This doesn't mean that this test is everything in this patient population. There was no group that had a non-receptive ERA that then still had an embryo transfer done on day five, meaning that study hasn't been done yet. It's actually being done right now because we don't know in the current study I'm talking about if that was just the next embryo was meant to be for both of these groups or if it really was that a shift in the timing of the embryo transfer made a difference. Study is currently being done where all patients are having an endometrial biopsy. Day is being kind of determined, so they're being grouped off. It's being done at a large clinical IVF practice, and so hopefully we will have some more guidance on how to use the ERA test in these patients who are not truly recurrent pregnancy loss patients. So this may or may not be a test that's good for you if you've had a failed transfer in the past. I say talk to your doctor about it. Understand the pros and cons. And I truly believed in personalized care, meaning I may make a different choice based on your age or your AMH or how many embryos you have, how easy it is for us to get more embryos. So it really depends on you. It is time. It is money. It is invasive. Nothing is without risk. So just understanding the process is super important. And guys, I'm going to wrap it up there. So thank you so much for listening to this episode. I know it's a lot of information packed into one, especially if you combine the IVF and the FET episodes together. I have a blog post being released also that is called Preparing for IVF and Your Embryo Transfer. And I'm going to be taking questions. So you can write them anonymously as a comment on the blog post. You can write them into Instagram. I'll have a post there also. And I'm going to do an episode subsequently that will be your questions. So Q&A for IVF and FET. That way, if there's more things that I didn't touch on that you want to go through, you can let me know what they are. Thank you guys so much for listening. All your support for the As A Woman podcast means the world to me. Every rate, review, and share. I can't tell you how much that means to somebody who spends their time and energy creating things when it is received well from you. So thank you. You can follow me on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD. You can follow the blog of the same name at NatalieCrawfordMD.com. 
And as always, thank you.